0: This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer.
1: No, we don't teach critical race theory in schools. Don't even say that. Like, don't at all. Engage it. Say, what is critical race theory? And quickly, I'll just tell people, hey, you know, critical race theory in my mind is that there is racism that's happening within our institutions and there's a way to solve it. That's it. It's
0: two points. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms microsoftinwashington Microsoft in Washington. This is the Nerd Farmer podcast, a national conversation through a local lens.
2: Welcome to the Nerd Farmer podcast brought to you by our friends at Microsoft. My name is Nate, and I'm your host a Tacoma Abroad. Today is a continuation of an informal series that you could entitle uh, Nate Checking In on Sanity. And so over the last few episodes, we've talked to Tori Glass, who's an anti-racist educator, uh, about the apparent rise of black conservatism, both online and off, and its role in the political discourse and what that means electorally for the Democratic Party and for the country in the near future. Uh, prior to that, we talked to Bill Fitzgerald about online privacy and a bit of a check-in about, like, are we being smart with our data online? Are we being smart with what we're sharing uh, in our browsers, our search history? I talked about some changes I've made in my own life. And then before that, we talked to Tom Rademacher, who's a math teacher – sorry, who's an uh, English teacher in Minnesota, uh, all-around good dude, who's currently on leave from the classroom and somebody who I care about deeply and respect a professional. And so, in continuing this conversation, reaching out to basically one of my faves, uh, the man, the myth, the legend, author, Jose Wilson. And Jose, welcome to the show, man.
1: Thanks for having me, man.
2: So, you don't know this story, I think, and so I just want to shout out my man, John Prosser. Uh, Back in, like, 2014, I want to say... I was working with my organization. I kind of co-founded here Teachers United, and Prosser was like, "There's this guy, the JLV on Twitter. Like, you have to follow and meet up with. Like, you have to start parlaying with him because your worldviews are so similar." And then uh, you and I actually started meeting in real life and working together. And like the, the, the next two years, he's like, "I told you so. I told you so." And so, John, uh, you were correct, and we're having this conversation. Uh, Hello, Jose. I think the world of you as an advocate and as an activist, uh, I think that you are willing to take stands uh, that need to be taken on behalf of students. And one thing I appreciate about you, I think I share is, is that we don't care about not being liked. Uh, and so, right. And so we're willing to take on some fights. I, I, I want to talk through the last, it's, it's classic me, right? I want to talk through the last decade and a half in ed policy in the next 45 minutes. But like, that's what I want to do. You and I got in the game about the same time. Tell me your story about like when you decided to become a teacher and your first teaching assignment. It's,
1: it's funny. Um, it, it, I think my story is semi-aligned with the newer generation of education reform. So I would say, you know, I'll start in 2003 because that's more or less when teaching as a profession went from the back of my mind. to. like. Maybe I can do this to, oh, this is a thing I could most definitely do. And so um, I definitely found myself saying, wow, what if I actually wanted to teach as a full-time thing? Uh, Interestingly, I actually applied for Teach for America. Um, I didn't get in not through their own fault, but because like my lesson plan was trash, um, and I fully acknowledge that. Uh, but then I graduated with a degree in computer science from Syracuse University. I did I did decent with that, but I was unemployed for six months, and so I actually had a lot of opportunity to um, do a lot of really good work with um, activism and blogging, and I got really good at it um, over time. But then I actually ended up having to get a job. Um, and I got one as a data entry specialist at some point, And I did pretty well with it. I, I over exceeded expectations, did learn transcription, so on and so forth. But in the back of my mind, I was like, no, actually, I, I should be going back to the front of my mind, which is I want to teach. And so I applied for the NYC Teaching Fellows. Luckily, I got in. I mean, the first time around, they were like, no. And then a couple months later, they were like, actually, we need teachers. So yes, please come in. And little did they know that like through that cohort, I was actually going to be one of the few who stayed at the very school that I had been assigned for 15 years plus out of that. So uh, that's how I started teaching. And I've been in education ever since.
2: Yeah. Uh, There's teachers who teach and there's teachers who teach only in their classrooms. You do the thing that I like where you teach outside of the classroom. So it sounds like you started on the activist path before you started, but like for me, it's different. Like for me, like I decided to become a teacher in like 2004. I went to grad school, 2006 I was teaching, but I bing. And then around 08, 09, I was like, wait a minute, I got some questions. And that's when I started kind of leaning into activism. Uh, for you, what was the catalyst to get into activism as an educator?
1: That's a great question. Um, It's funny, like the seed that I think was planted in me was in a little space called the Boys Club and it was in the Lower East Side. Um, There were some uh, black and brown women who had been um, hosting a series uh, of of watch parties for Eyes on the Prize. They offered us sugar cookies and refreshments. So I was like, oh, of course, I'm down. Let's go, we gotta get food. Um, But that was the seed that was planted. And then fast forward to high school where I was in a predominantly white, all uh, boys' Catholic school. And in there, I didn't have the language for some of the things that I had experienced, but I really recognized that there was some racist stuff happening to me directly, and I didn't have the language for it. So when I got to Syracuse University, I was like, I'm gonna listen to all the things. I'm gonna hear all the things. So Angela Davis was one of the first folks I ever heard. Uh, I got to meet with Bobby Seale. I didn't appreciate that moment the way that I wanted to, but now I'm like, I cannot believe I got to like hang out with Bobby Seale. You know, you name a bunch of the Black Panthers who were still alive, I got to hang out with them, Amir Baraka, the rest of his soul, so on and so forth. So, um, Felipe Luciano, the Young Lord. So, like, I got really deep into the activist stuff. And of course, 9-11 happened during that formation too. So, like, I was, the, like, the, the the current wave of conspiracy theorists have nothing on us from back then, right? Like, we were really, <laughs> we were really about that life. And so, like, we were, di- like, that's back when Infowars, Infowars actually had real information, not like the Joe Rogan nonsense that's happening now. But, um, the, becoming an educator was the way that I could both contribute back to my community in an activist way while still getting paid for that thing. Um, And I could have done other things too shortly, but like teaching just became the thing because computer science gave me a lot of math to do. And I was like, Oh, like, this is the thing that gets us math. Great. Like we're going to do this then because that's the thing that's going to get more kids to, have opportunities open more doors so on and so forth yeah and
2: something that i think about hearing you talk about you know your own experience and your own path is is how important it is to kind of own your own voice uh, I've shared on this show before that like I've submitted pieces of my writing and I've been told it's too wordy, which it is sometimes. Uh, it's too nerdy, which it is sometimes. It's too insular, which it is sometimes. It's too black, which it is sometimes. But like sometimes I just want to be wordy, black, insular, and self-referential, right? And so like to me it's really important to like own my own platforms. And so I get offers to write all the time, uh, but I, I don't because frankly I'd rather have a conversation on this podcast where I can, you know, have somebody exchange ideas or self-publish, uh, and so you did both those things. Uh, talk a bit about uh, Eddie color as an idea and a movement, and then also your book, This Is Not a Test.
1: Okay. You know, it's funny. Like, you, I actually started writing really as a as a way to just put out my thoughts. And it was very like informal. Um, but then over time, my voice started really growing and my audience did too. But I was doing it anonymously, right? And I won't say where it was, but shout out to Zanga Gang, shout out to Detroit, shout out to like a bunch of different like spaces who you wouldn't think were really connected in this way uh, through the black web. Um, and then at some point, Amber Cabral, uh, who's like amazing, uh, she said, Jose, you need to write under your own name. So the Jose Wilson came to formation pretty quickly after that. And of course I started guarding an audience through that too. And I got connected through the center for teaching quality, which, you know, John process connected to that, um, mm-hmm. a bunch of other folks. And I started getting like this energy, like wherever I went, you know, wherever two or more of us were gathered and you know, this well, right. Wherever two or more of us were gathered, we were building community within community, which is very connected to like the nation within a nation concept. So I said, yeah. What if we can sustain this energy organizationally? that we could do so much more for a lot of different people. So, like, there was the energy of myself, of me, like, going on this path, but I never thought that I should be the only one. Like, it was great to be the first current classroom teacher to ask the first current classroom. But then, of course, as you say, like, I may have been too Black, too irreverent for a lot of these different spaces. Like, never got, you know, mentioned for, like, Teacher of the Year or anything like that, uh, because that was never, like, the ethos in New York City more generally. But, um... Mm. EduColor really came into being because at first it was just supposed to be like a diversity audit for different education conferences, which, and it was unrelated to so many of the folks who uh, started like the second iteration that everybody really knows. But that first iteration, we were just trying to do that. And I was like, no, every space is pretty damn white. So um, a couple of years later, we reformed with a bunch of folks who, you know, we've named before. And that became the impetus for saying, if we can just collectively say like, if, you know, wherever there's an education conference, let's get together. Cool. But then it became like, what if we just created our own thing? Cool. What if we offered opportunities in ways and mentored people in ways for, on the free? Like, hey, no doubt, you want this, we got this, because we needed to create our own spaces in that way. And of course, a lot of that converged too with the Black Lives Matter movement. Fight for 15, so much of the actions that were happening, we were like, we need something in education that speaks to that energy because nobody else is gonna do it for us. Um, especially as we see like the numbers of uh, teachers just kind of like waxing wane, especially educators of color and folks who are really about that life. So that's how that became. And then of course, this is not a test, like it was also part of that energy too, understanding full well that if we see a bookshelf and there are no cl- current classroom teachers On that bookshelf, and yet we're having (laughs) education discussions, then what are we doing exactly? So I got to writing and I said, This is the thing I'm going to do. And just like you said, I've had a bunch of different offers to write the teaching book or how to teach this, how, you know, try to, and I was like, No, like I have a vision for this, which is that there is a voice, there's a moral and ethical calling that is necessary right now. And it's not gonna come from somebody outside the classroom. It's gonna come from somebody who's doing this work right now. So this is not a test came to being. And of course, shout out to Haymarket Books for believing in the vision, letting me rock. Um, And it wasn't even much of a battle. They were like, oh, you're gonna do this? Great, let's do it. I was like, thank you, let's go. So um, long story short, like it just became its own thing too. So I've been blessed to be part of a lot of different things.
2: Why do you think so few teachers are willing to get out there and rattle cages? Like, I feel oftentimes that if we look at the field of education, we're talking about over a million people in the United States, people in every community. And that should be a catalyzing political force uh, and a catalyzing po- policy force. But oftentimes it's 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 the opposite. Like it's a political force that like, runs from power and runs from influence. Why, why do you think that is?
1: I think it's multifold. Obviously, it's worth naming that it is a, a women-dominated profession. So uh the, the ways that voice shows up in this sort of thing, um, it, a lot of it is by permission, or people have to ask for something, or they have to grant clearances. Um, that's one element. The second is that, and I've named this a billion times, and I'm gonna just I'm gonna make people mad anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, there there's a sense that when uh, the education researcher speaks that they know more than the teacher uh, mm-hmm. the uh, I guess the the union head knows more the uh, you know the person who's been studying this, the principal even like there's just so many different levels above the teacher that the teacher themselves doesn't even, don't, don't really get to speak to the thing that they're experiencing so I, I think people are often looking for um, educational experiences, about teaching but not from teachers because they feel like teachers don't really know their craft in the way like could you imagine like me trying to you know say oh doctors don't know what they're talking about like you have a ton yeah. of doctors writing their own books duh because they know their thing but again that's gender that's racial um that's class-based like there's a lot of different levels here that uh we often need to talk. and of course too not having the spaces to really cultivate that voice, right? Um, Because teachers have a billion stories, don't we? Like, we have a lot of different people who really care about the thing that we do, but you know, we're not offered the time we have the, the United States, if I'm not mistaken, has some of the most uh, face to like teacher to student face to
2: face time in the entire oh, world. Man. Um, so hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me tell you about this really fast. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know until I knew now I know. So back in the States, I had five classes mm-hmm. and I had 55 minutes of planning a day. And that was how, how I rolled. And I was basically planning whatever, whatever. In my new position, we work on a four-period uh, block schedule. And so on A days, I have one planning period of 80 minutes, although it's shorter during Ramadan. Yeah. And then on B days, I have two planning periods, total, total 160 minutes. And so instead of having 55 minutes a day, I have 240 minutes over two days. In addition to that, I have about two thirds of the students. And so the amount of feedback and the amount of intentionality I'm going to put in lesson planning and the amount of schlubbing home of notebooks that I've taken that I do has the, just the quality of life. So just, just yes. Yes. If you, if, if if your answer to my question is teachers don't do activism because they're busy, then like, yeah, that's the answer. That is the answer.
1: Yeah. And of course, even in this moment, when you think, you know, we should have more teachers speaking to what it's like to teach in the pandemic, the actual, uh, I guess the boundaries of teaching. It might be the same profession, surely, but yeah. the, the the boundaries of teaching, like the, the bandwidth that people have, the the spiritual uh way of approaching this work, it's only pushed everything else outward. So all that free time that they used to kind of have, not even not that they even had it to begin with, but it's even less so. So why why would you want to do anything else besides rest? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so true. It's such so like one of my favorite things on social media right now is the nap ministry because like, it's just mm. so true. Like so many folks are just tired. And like, that's, I, I think honestly, it was by design. Like they keep folks worn out. If you're worn out, you can't fight. And mm. it's not a coincidence to me that all the CRT moral panic that we'll get to in a little bit is happening basically in the midst of and on the back end of a pandemic that wore folks down and that a lot of these bills were written during the summertime when school wasn't in session and kind of snuffy legislatures. And that's a whole thing we'll come back to. Uh, the time period we're talking about looking back on the founding of EduColor, looking at your book is almost now like this golden age of ed advocacy. Mm. Like I, there's a time period where like my biggest complaints about, well, th- that's not true. There's a time period where one of my larger complaints was, as you mentioned, oh, there's no black or brown speakers on this panel. There's no women on this panel. Uh, Why are you writing this article about education and not citing a practicing teacher? But, like, that is so far down the rankings right now (laughs) on, like, the things that I'm worried about in education. Yeah. And it seems to me that, like, there was this period where even if there was disagreement about means and about, like, what needed to be done, for the most part, we were all coming from a place of we wanted the best. And so like I didn't agree with the like race to the top initiative and I didn't agree with Arnie Duncan's policy recommendations necessarily on things, but I didn't think that Arne Duncan was trying to dismantle public education as we knew it. Mm-hmm. It was a difference and a disagreement around like the ideas and the policy, not a disagreement around principles that we're experiencing then. And so one thing that I wonder, and this is kind of one of the purpose of these conversations is like seeking thought partnership is did we get the gains that we were looking for out of that kind of golden era that we had of ed advocacy from say 2010 to like 2016?
1: Okay. I think there are some things that were definitely wins and believe it or not, like as much as I, I'm, not so much about symbols. Symbols are critical. So yeah. um, s- some of my wins include you becoming a teacher of the year, Johanna Hayes becoming the first teacher, I believe, and there was a fourteen-year gap between uh, people of color uh, being, and of course, like having somebody like Johanna Hayes be the representative of all teachers is uh, is phenomenal. And then you follow that up with a couple of radical teachers, <laughs> and then you follow that up with Rodney Robinson, who's also dope, and of course, yep. even like you know Julia uh, Juliana Utube,
2: and of course. Um, you know, now we we have um, a new black male teacher, right? Yeah, Kurt so, Russell. They, they, so, folks, listen to this. They announced the National Teacher Day for twenty twenty two, like yesterday, and it's a black man named Kurt Russell. We we out here now. We out here.
1: <laughs> and believe it or not, people are citing the thing that I researched to name that he was the f- fourth black male teacher because I went and did the research uh, back for uh, Rodney Robinson. So, when yes. I think about like that sort of you know naming of teacher leadership. I'm thankful that we got to advocate in that way and that people are being thoughtful about putting teachers on panels and giving them more book. I I do see more teacher books, even if they're not necessarily in the ways that like I would have written them, but I do at least see how that's becoming a thing now. Um, And of course you putting students on panels too, that's really really dope to see as well Mm -hmm. and having them on TV. Um, That's, that's been cool. Um, And I think people have scaled back somewhat from just focusing on standardized testing, not to the extent that I would want, but at least people are being more thoughtful about what that looks like. And that's been really transformative. And I think that people are willing to engage that now in a way that they weren't able to, um, in the in the peak of 2010, right? Um, but having said that, I, I wish <laughs> we had laid a better foundation for this idea of public schooling, right? And mm-hmm. It's hard because when you're in what your 20s trying to shake up a system, that's and this is me thinking to myself like, I didn't know all the ins and outs, right? Like, we only knew what we were able to see and what people actually spoke about. So we had to go off that. Um, We didn't know that the fringe would now become the mainstream so quickly, especially when it came to uh, the lack of uh, truly democratic processes the infiltration of monies from folks who want to dismantle public education more generally, um, the traditions of reconstruction and how, you know, Black people in the South were voting for public schooling because they wanted society to be more responsible to that education as the foundation, right? Even if they believed the school choice, they still saw how important it was to have a public education as a quality check just to make sure. Like, you need a public option.
2: Duh. um
1: we we lost a lot of that. And that that's not necessarily our fault, but now it's gonna have to become our responsibility.
2: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned school choice. It's something I think about a lot. Like the school choice fights that happened in the mid-teens were annoying, frankly, and frustrating, and watching people who should be allies initially become enemies and watching the belligerents back and forth. And it was frustrating to me because like my response rejoinder to particularly my white colleagues is if you don't want black and brown parents picking uh, charter schools, then make public school schools they want their kids to be in. I'm not a pro charter or pro voucher person, but also like I work at a private international school right now. So I'd be an absolute hypocrite a-hole to be like, folks shouldn't have choice. But you nailed it that there are folks who were in the school reform and school choice movement who then became, Hey, let's open the doors and let the crazy fringe in. And then they lended their credibility to the fringe and then basically have established these fringe actors now in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And then when they're called to it now, they're like, how could I know? How could I know? Like there's been, so, so this is a name and name show, I guess. So like not talking about educators per se, but like conservative columnists and, and, and pundit Andrew Sullivan basically like handmade tailed and walked Christopher Rufo into the political mainstream and then when Rufo as long as Rufo was like talking about CRT and then when Rufo turned on the on the gay and trans community like Sullivan's like how can we allow this person it's like you did this Uh, Folks like Erica Sanzi, who is in Rhode Island and runs Good School Hunting. Like, she is somebody who was an advocate for school choice, who was now just a vociferous mouthpiece for white resident politics uh, and has brought folks like the Rufos and the CRT Moral panickers into the conversation. And the thing is, is that, like, There are these folks were willing to put black and brown parents on the front of their brochures and the front of their uh, charter school pamphlets and in their campaigns to get school choice in the in the various states in Minnesota and Michigan. But then when the time became apparent and their white identity became central during the Trump years, they threw them black folks to the side. That's not even a question. That's just a take. But go ahead.
1: man. No, it's not just a take. Um, It's 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 real. It's real facts. Um, And so. You know, there's blame to go around for everybody. So I'm sure you remember I was I was part of the Save Our Schools march back in 2012, which was the impetus for uh, so much of the opt-out movement. Um, and it was mm-hmm. the, at the at that point it was the largest um, national uh, pushback against standardized testing. You know, and you could you could name it was a who's who of everybody. And of course, there was this little curricular classroom teacher trying to also make a name for himself around these issues. What I ended up finding out um, after building and after like talking through things is that there were people who were very willing to, uh, open the doors for those fringes as long as they were against common core and standardized testing even if it yeah. meant making allegiance with the tea party even if it meant that these folks were super duper racist and it was like oh yeah like people made um hashtag deals all the time with people who you know had a common interest even though they were racist and i was like that that's not gonna work for me like these folks don't see us as people what what part do you not understand so like there's all across the political spectrum, like we ought to be thoughtful about how whiteness works (laughs) and how quickly people are are willing to make allegiances with people who uh, don't see us as human beings. And actually that's part of why Educolor was formed too, because we just said, you know what, like we can do... you know, activism around education while still making sure that everyone feels like they're human beings, that, that's a possibility. But none of you see that as a possibility because your whiteness is affirming to your humanity already in this context. It must be nice. Um, and, you know, it's funny too, like you mentioned a bunch of conservatives. I think there were there were even Black folk who at some point also gave up on notions of you know, what the public ought to be thinking about and said, you know what, we'll handshake deal as long as you give us a, a certain amount of money. like, we'll push whatever agenda you wish upon us as long as we get to do like the separate. And even if it's unequal, we'll do a separate thing on our own and we'll tell everybody, oh, we're all about choice. We love choice. And so you give us money, we'll advocate for that. Um, and, and maybe they came into this, you know, with genuine intention. But at some point, yeah. uh, there was a couple of us who were like, dude, they're they're playing us. They're playing us hard. Um, and th- this is where they're at. And unfortunately, you know, it gave way to the Betsy DeVos's. It gave way to the Donald Trump's. It gave way to what we're seeing now with the CRT stuff. Um, and it's it's been brooding for quite some time. Um, all this stuff about them seeing us as human beings, that, that was not a thing that was going to happen. I'm glad that some of us had the foresight to see that.
2: For sure. Let's take a break here. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about... Uh... <laughs> that the obama years and reform movement and like what happened all those defer dollars and then also Ooh. how we reclaim the narrative we'll be back
3: hello i'm evelyn lopez host of the channel 253 podcast crossing division this episode of channel 253 is sponsored by microsoft Microsoft is proud to support Rainier Scholars. Rainier Scholars believes that all students deserve an equal opportunity to excel academically and become our next community and business leaders. And now they're in the 253. Rainier Scholars Tacoma is a long-term college readiness program for underrepresented students of color in the Tacoma community. They recruit in the fourth grade, start working with students and families the summer before fifth grade, and walk alongside them through college completion with the goal of graduating with minimal debt. Do you know a student who should be part of the first Tacoma cohort? Recruitment is now underway. Microsoft and Rainier Scholars share the desire to cultivate a growth mindset and believe every student deserves the opportunity to achieve more. To find out more about Rainier Scholars in Tacoma, visit RainierScholars.org and click Tacoma. My thanks to Microsoft for their support of Channel 253 and Rainier Scholars.
2: Hey, everybody, I want to thank you for downloading the show today. The Nerd Farmer podcast is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. We're a network of shows grounded in the Northwest, giving local views and also voice to views outside of the Northwest. So uh, on this episode, we're talking to Jose. Uh, Later on, we're talking to King Bless about some issues around digital assets. If you enjoy what you're hearing and enjoying this conversation, think about supporting our network. Uh, It costs $4 a month or $40 a year. Like That's the tip on a beer in half the city of Tacoma for keeping it real. Uh, that support makes this work possible. And if you join Channel 253 as a member, you get access to our member-only Slack and also Doug's off-record podcast, which I'll be recording later on. And so that's channel253.com slash membership. It's $4 a month or $40 a year. And it's worth supporting media and content you care about. All right. So, Jose, something you mentioned that I really appreciated is, is that, in this is experience that I went through. Uh, I've talked about this, I think, in a couple of talks that I've given, but not on the show. I co-founded an organization called Teachers United. Yeah, and what Teachers United tried to do was be a solutions-oriented, uh, pro-student voice in the education policy space. Like we believed in our union on about ninety-five percent of the issues, but on the five percent we disagreed, they were oftentimes around uh, things around students and things about like teacher performance and things that we were advocating for. And my experience that I found in the education reform movement in the Northwest was oftentimes folks would come to the table with their prefabricated ed policy agenda, and then they were looking for, like, teacher cover. So. Hey, be the teacher to give us cover for this document that you had no no part in forming, uh, and we will continue to offer support to you. When you were talking about folks advocating for choice, that's similar. To, that's what I was thinking about and kind of picturing in my head. And it got to a point basically where like the reason why the organization is no longer around is is that we didn't agree to the policy that the basically the the the, the Gates Foundation approved constellation of organizations was putting together. Like we didn't agree with. Some of the policies that didn't sign on to them and then our funding dried up. And so when you talked about like folks dependent on funding and, and, and barking to the music being called, like I just want to validate that as like not being conspiracy, not being paranoia. That's literally how it works. Yeah. Uh, something that I think about is, is that I feel like there was a lot of goodwill towards progress. And Again, I didn't agree with all the things that the folks from Stanford Children were doing, but the folks from Stanford Children, which was a northwest group at least, I'm not sure they were in New York. Uh, they had, a, had had a vision that would that it proposed policies I did not agree with, but were, that were theoretically policies that were good for students. Uh, I name dropped Defer earlier on. We've 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 left that period now, and it seems like the honestly that whole like Gates funded. Constellation of organizations, I don't even see online very much anymore. Like they're they've kind of fallen to the wayside, and so the loudest voices are now these belligerents, these Christopher Rufo's, these Republican legislators, these these legislation and these and these uh, these bills that are like pre-written by Alec and dropped in the dead of night. Mm. How do we, as people who come from the classroom and people who put students and families at the center, how do we reclaim the narrative from this current CRT moral panic, from this, uh, if you validate gay and trans students, you're a groomer. If you're a teacher and you talk about uh, having a relationship that's not a herosive relationship, then you're trying to groom and indoctrinate and sexualize students. How do we reclaim the narrative from these buffoons?
1: That's a great question. Um, I'm usually Of the, (laughs) I'm usually of the mindset that yes, like non non nonviolent action is usually optimal, especially given so much of the optics around it. But every so often, I think verbal violence is is warranted, Um, if especially if it comes to down to like personal danger and proximity, uh, it's worth engaging and figuring out what it is. It's like to keep that same energy. Like, what are you like? if you have a set of parents who are that belligerent, what about having another set of parents who say, no, actually we're fighting for this. Like this needs to be a thing. Um, I'm curious about like, for example, not buying into the framing of using, by the way, a body of scholarship that fully (laughs) and ironically, um, explains exactly the moment that we're in right now. So when you, when I say critical race theory, I fully mean all the things that Kimberly, uh, You know, Crenshaw and uh, Derrick Bell and so many great scholars came up with as a body of knowledge to discuss institutional uh, racism and how we can actually dismantle so much of that. Um, I don't mean that other one. So when I talk about that other one, I say the anti-truth movement. Um, okay. Anti- okay.
2: Talk your talk. Talk your talk. Yes. Yes, <laughs> right. I'm here for
1: this. So I'll just say, you know, the anti-truth movement really just doesn't want us to talk about like what kids actually deserve. The kids des- kids deserve us to actually be honest with them about what's happening around them. And even if we disagree, it doesn't mean that like we shouldn't, we should just like totally take them away from the privileges and the gifts that our world is able to give them. Like they deserve all of the histories um, so that they can make a better world than the one that we're living in now. Right. Um, notice I didn't use that that other term because that other yeah. term would has its own specific context um similarly when it comes to like issues of grooming, I'm like why why are you why 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 are you thinking like that <laughs> like and i'll just i'll just engage them I'm like, so what is your theory around that and like over time, like I'm like, okay, so you're really thinking a lot darker than. I would have thought, I would have thought that we just want to make sure that everybody feels like they're included in their classrooms, that they belong in our classrooms. And I don't even have to like touch on issues of, you know, sexual orientation or any of that stuff, because frankly, like trying to engage in that often allows people to say, well, you're just a groomer because you brought up this, that, and the third. I'm like, do 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 I want to bring up your web history or not? Nah? Um <laughs>
2: Right. No, that's facts, though, because like every accusation is projection, right? Like they're always projecting like the folks who accuse other folks. Just ne- never mind. We agree. We agree. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because we know we've seen it on the news, Um, how quickly that
1: that can devolve. And of course, all you got to do is search their Twitters and it becomes like, oh, like you're really into that. That, that's wild. I didn't think they, you know, all I want to do is just make sure that they feel included. But you, on the other hand, seem to have some unresolved issues. Um, and I'm glad that therapy is at an all-time high right now so that you can go see one. There's, there's access to these things. Um, but yeah, I, I'm very quick to, you know, say, you know, let's, in, let's engage, but let's engage thoughtfully about what's happening. I think too much of the resistance uh, to this anti-truth movement has been, No, we don't teach critical race theory in schools. Don't even say that. Like, don't at all. Engage it. Say, what is critical race theory? And quickly, I'll just tell people, hey, you know, critical race theory in my mind is that there is racism that's happening within our institutions and there's a way to solve it. That's it. It's two points. So um, let's engage further. And what you mean by that? Oh, you mean like these books that want to have more kids of color in the textbooks do you mean uh this really you know well acclaimed book that we want to read oh you mean that you know two plus two does equal four but sometimes it doesn't because you have to think about the units that that two and that two like you wouldn't add two apples and two oranges and say that's four apple oranges right like that that's all we're trying to say oh you mean that Mayans and, you know, people of African descent also had their own particular mass and that, you know, I, I could just go on. Like, I would just go off. And unfortunately, too much of the resistance, A, is left to just teachers' unions. So, you know, shout outs to, like, to Randy and um, Becky Pringle, like shout outs to them shortly, but they shouldn't be the ones to handle all of it. Like we need mm. actual politicians who are also able to say, no, actually public education is really important for the society. We need people to say straight up, like, and it's very important, especially for our black and brown folks who may not have the same amount of choices that our white brethren to- do, including my own children. Like, sit, like check the T for example, right? I- I've done a couple of workshops in independent schools around issues of race and math and all those teachers loved it. Like I got the reviews back. They were like, Oh, this is dope. I didn't think about that. But then come to find out that some of the very politicians who are talking about the anti-truth movement that are, you know, putting that up, their daughters and their sons are getting my work. That's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) That's a problem. So then which one is it, sir? Like, which one is it? Like, and so for me, um, I think the pushback has to be obviously subversive. There's going to be a bunch of folks who may just go underground shortly, but there's a bunch of us who we've been about that Twitter life for some time, and we need to figure out what it is about that that allows us to engage more deeply so that politicians, policymakers, and folks can really stand up and not just like get quiet whenever like there is that resistance from the far right.
2: Yeah, so many things to tug on there. So you mentioned your definition, of understanding of critical race theory, and mine is similar. One of the frustrating or like, maybe frustrating is wrong. One of the amusing things to me is that for these moral panickers who are concerned about critical race theory, the scholarship actually absolves them of the accusations that it says it makes about them. Mm -hmm. So critical race theory says the system is inherently racist and that racism is in every institution. And it absolves individual actors for the most part as being racist by existing. It doesn't say you are born racist. It says you're born in a racist system. But – they don't understand the theory, and so they react against the theory that actually absolves them basically as actors. Like that is so stupefying to me, and like i've I've not heard anybody really point that out or use that point of argument like in retort to these like systemically, and that's that's a thought you 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 mentioned it shouldn't fall to the unions, and I agree hundred percent. But one of the things I think about are our brothers and sisters and non-binary folks who are in classrooms who don't have representation at all. yeah, right so like you're from you're from from New York new york union strong i'm from washington state washington union strong uh oh hold on okay so <laughs> i wish this was a video because your eyes said a lot okay sorry let's t- you're from new york and uh they have they have unions okay yeah. i'm from washington state they have unions we'll go with that all right yeah uh, there's a lot of folks who work in right to work states and folks that work in states where unions are wholly banned and so one of the things that I would love to see, and if you're listening to this and you're somebody with some money uh, or you're somebody with some influence or you're somebody who works in venture capital or is, or for a philanthropic organization, is a legal defense fund for educators because there is going to be a, there are going to be numerous lawsuits coming up over these, these bills. Essentially, the bills are passing in states that don't have strong representation because those states are right-to-work states. And so the people who are going to be most impacted by these speech bans in class are folks who don't have access to unions. And so it's incumbent to me upon the unions and to me upon the ACLU. And frankly, like if somebody wants to write a check to Instaway, a group like that, to, to, to create a legal defense fund for educators in Tennessee, in Oklahoma, in Mississippi, who are doing their job or just teaching freaking history and then being punished by the state. I like the idea. My blinks too, by the way. I, I think
1: it depends on context, but also I think every union has to make decisions about what they want to fight for. And collective bargaining is always number one. So it, mm-hmm. sometimes if it means like putting a lot of the conversation about anti-racism to the side and knowing that they may not be able to win, then they'll put it to the side. And so um, that that's something that I don't think that our current leadership is saying, I'm just saying, like, generally, like, if if there's an endgame of some nature, then the endgame is going to be about collective bargaining. It's not going to be about some of these issues, which is wild, right? But anyway, it's, yeah. that's just the way it's going to work. Um, yes, I often think about the folks who do not have representation and I'll uh, also venture, too, that there was a report that came out more recently that if your district is more quickly diversifying, then your district is going to be more likely to see uh, one of these anti-truth bills, for sure. Hmm. And so that's something worth interrogating, too, because like the nature of these bills is also very much about white supremacy and how uh, people want to make sure things stay the same. And in order for that to be ensured, it has to be in policy. And so, yes— like we do need some sort of legal defense fund. It'd be nice if uh, Pan America did such a thing because they do have the resources in in many ways, and they have kind of like that that um they they do have a mindset around these issues that I think, for yeah. example, the ACLU may not. Um, the, you know, ACIU feels like they kind of have to defend all types of people as long as it's just free speech. Whereas Penn is like, no, I actually, really think more deeply about the folks who are critical in this work, especially those of color. That's important, an important orientation. Um, and of course, our LGBTQIA plus, you know, folks too. Um, I'm thinking too, what would it be like if We did have bigger drives around like getting more of the politics, getting more of us to be the politicians, to be the policymakers, to straight up flatten a lot of these houses. Because, again, as you said, once we stop, once once we're tired of being tired, there will be a reckoning. (laughs) Yeah once, you know, once we get back to pseudo normal, I think there's going to be like, wait, this is a mess. Like, we got to do something about this. And hopefully that's a thing that happens in our lifetimes because it, it, it can't keep going on this way. Like, this, this just cannot be it. And um, I mean, that's the hope that we all have, don't we, as educators? Like, the, that's the thing that we want. Uh, so that, let's see what that looks like.
2: In, in the moment that we're living in, I feel like things can get bleak and people can become hopeless and with a pandemic with rising costs with teacher censorship with uh enforcement like like immigration enforcement still ongoing in many marginalized communities there can be a bit of like gloom and i know a lot of really quality people who've left the profession like My wife's co-host, Annie Jansen is now going to be an electrician and she's really happy about it. Like she's glad to be out of teaching. And that breaks my heart because she was my co-planner for several years. Like she was my work spouse and I thought the world of her. Mm. Uh, you are currently pursuing a PhD at Columbia. Yes. Uh, what is your area of studies? And then like, what's your plan, uh, to, what is, what is your plan for like when you're finished with that?
1: Thank you for asking, and it's wild, because I did leave in the middle of the pandemic, not because of the pandemic itself, but because I I got tired of a lot of racist uh, actions and policies that were directly affecting me, and ironically enough, the principal who I had at last, she was the new principal uh, that was just coming in, and then the pandemic happened, and I was really sad, because she was the best principal I had ever had um, at that moment, but unfortunately, I only had her for about a year. I'm studying sociology and education within uh, Columbia University Teachers College and uh, with a policy concentration. So I'm doing all the things as usual. Um, <laughs> and my particular. Consistency. Bo- right. Because, you know, me, um, I'm trying to figure out what it is about educators of color in New York City. So mm. um, that's going to be probably be my diss but it's going to be a microcosm for the profession overall. So there's a lot of conversations about diversity and equity, yada, yada. Um, Sociology is instructive because it is um, a way to discuss collective human behavior. And so what my interest is, is like, okay, so you have about 46% of the teaching staff are are educators of color. Um, You have... New York City, which has its, you know, the largest union, the largest local in the entire country, Um, you have all the things you could possibly want out of like, um, I guess, education policy when it comes to protecting educators, so on and so forth. And yet and still, when you actually ask educators of color in the city about their experiences, they're not unlike so many people outside of New York City. That is to say that like you're still running into the same issues of race, of class, of gender, of uh, lack of mobility, um, of lack of representation, lack of voice, so on and so forth. So like I have deep curiosities about that. And so sociology is giving me a lot of lenses as to what that looks like. And it's gonna help me really interrogate some of that from a critical, critical perspective. Um, And of course, knowing the histories of New York City education more generally, like you've come to find out that a lot of this stuff, people say, oh, well, the South is this. "Hmm, The North is this. New York City is this. We are all the things. (laughs) We have seriously deep issues. So um, I'm always curious about that dynamic. And I think what I want to do with all that is eventually like, yes, come out with a book that, you know, discusses some of this more thoroughly, but also, hope to develop some form of framework or policy uh, around educators of color that goes beyond just a recruitment and retention and an invisible tax conversation that gets deep into the weeds. Yeah.
2: A couple of exit questions for you. So you and I are old grizzled vets. I'm in my 16th year in the classroom. I tell kids nowadays, I've been teaching since before you were born. I love it. Uh, <laughs> what does the Jose Wilson, who's in his first year in the Bronx right now, who has entered into school during a pandemic who's early in their career and frustrated, what do they need to hear right now? Uh, what message do you have for our early educators who are listening?
1: First and foremost, go learn who you are. Go learn that person. Um, And it sounds kind of touchy-feely, but it's just facts. Like, go learn who you are as a teacher versus who you are as a person. Who you are as a person, you may or may not know that person. You need to go figure Mm -hmm. out who that person is too. But then go figure out who you are as a teacher. Because so much of what teaching is, is about, like, what happens when you get the power that you say that you haven't had. So you finally have some level of power. What do you do with that? That state-sanctioned power. That changes you. Um, If you're not thoughtful and or if you are thoughtful, um, it can change you in so many different ways. So that first year teacher needed to hear like, go reflect, take the time, even if it's an hour every Friday, be like, who am I? What did I do? How did I fail? How could I do better? Um, And just be in it, like be that person and then come back and be fine with it. Go learn. And you can do that pretty quickly if you're really thoughtful about it.
2: Yeah. I would add to them, if you're listening to this, um, you are going to go exactly where the people you surround yourself with are going. Mm. So if you're hanging out with folks who are negative about kids and who are burned out, then you're going to be negative about kids and burned out. And if you're hanging out with people that seek excellence for students, then you're going to find yourself seeking excellence. Uh, Exit question number two. Man, what is up with your boy, Eric Adams? <sighs> <laughs>
1: I, listen, I, I, I'm i cool with talking about people, but I actually want to talk about the idea of, right? So yeah. w- there are a bunch of education activists here who told people like there were democratic processes that were going to crumble under uh, a, a, this type of mayoralty, right? Like um, when you have a mayor who doesn't necessarily believe in full accountability, who talks left and right about all sorts of things that are irrelevant to the current needs who doubles down on um the the demigod like nature of police of policing more generally um and doesn't at all want any level of accountability towards like our slow but steady uh, step into fascism uh, for New York City it's just real um, and then of course, like, having somebody who, like, is very quick to say, you know, oh, I'm from New York, but, you know, doesn't want us to check any sort of background, we know full yeah. well, hasn't lived in Brooklyn, hasn't lived in Manhattan for quite some time, um, and probably lived in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Like, e- even, if, even if people actually like that sort of thing about him, like that's democratic failings. Like there there are things, there are structures that are failing right then and there. And so we literally came out of one of the largest, if not the largest, um, protests against um, police brutality and more generally fascism um, in the 20th century, in the last hundred plus years, right? If I'm not mistaken. Um, Correct. And we still got this mayor. So that speaks volumes about the nexus of, you know, media, of, politic and mm-hmm. um society more generally and how we've allowed for somebody who t- t- completely takes joy in dissing the left t- t- takes joy and says hey like i'm gonna run as a center right democrat <laughs> and you have you can't do anything about it um it that says a lot and so unfortunately i think there's. People who are happy and smiling with him because they know full well that he knows a lot more about their history, which is wild to see, by the way. But um, yeah. I, I I would just say that um, people also from the outside should be very thoughtful about what they think New York is versus what it actually is and what it perhaps has always been, um, and how we've never actually had that conversation because people want to say, well, New York City is a liberal, yada yada. It's a progressive, none. <laughs> hmm, it, it's, it's wild over here. And people need to be very thoughtful about how they engage any conversation about New York City more generally. But um, yeah, I, I'm not particularly happy with uh where we're headed, uh, much less where we're at right now.
2: Yeah. Uh, Jose, man, thank you for make, taking the time to share your wisdom and your words. Very much appreciated. If people are listening to this and they want to find you on the socials, where can they look?
1: Um, At... The JLV on Twitter at the Jose Wilson on Instagram. Um, I'm act, I'm hyperactive on both. Um, and of course, the Jose Wilson and of course educolor. It's it's everywhere and anywhere. So feel free to, you know, throw us a line over there too. But uh individually, the first few, educolor, always and forever.
2: All right, man. Hey, thank you so much again. Uh be well. Of course, thank you. Wakanda, if ever, y'all, if you are able to get boosted, get boosted. It helps protect the community. Convict the police to kill Manuel Ellis. Go Sounders. And the Timber soccer.
0: Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. I'm seven thousand miles from home. I'm naming names. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I'm maybe a few miles away. I'm not. I can name names as well. Um. <laughs> Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel Two Five Three Podcast Network. Check out our other shows: Interchangeable White Ladies. Give me the mic. We are Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Taco Man. Flounder's B Team. Crossing Division. Citizen Tacoma. And what say you? This is, this is Channel Two Five Three.